Happy holidays, guys and gals, and welcome to the final episode of the Northern Miner Podcast for 2017. Uh, It has, in many ways, been a banner year for us. We have welcomed new sponsors, hosted fantastic guests, and smashed all forms of listener records and statistics. So first and foremost, I would like to extend our most sincere thanks to all of you out there who stream and download the show each and every week, uh, and thus welcome us into your homes and offices. We thank you for your loyal listenership, your valuable feedback and your very strong opinions uh this show would be nowhere without them um and yes i will be heading out of town for the holidays on thursday so we'll be back in action in the first week of january with some awesome new content to kick off the new year um but let's focus on the present because i do have a fantastic show to cap off 2017 and as usual we are brought to you by the yukon mining alliance please do head over to yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. Now, I did mention and or tease this last week, but we are indeed being joined by the Managing Director of Commodity Research at BMO Capital Markets this week, one Colin Hamilton. Uh, And the timing is also quite opportune since BMO just released their massive 51-page Industrial Metals and Bulk Commodities 2018 Outlook, aptly entitled, quote, staying positive. So we'll be chatting about all your favorite industrials. That includes copper, nickel, cobalt, uranium, coal, and zinc. Uh, Colin's going to break it all down uh, in terms of what he saw this year and what we can expect in 2018. Uh, So this is a really great conversation. We dig into where all these sort of industrials and bulk commodities are in their respective cycles, what the supply-demand fundamentals look like, and also what the macroeconomic uh, industrial economies look like heading into 2018. Colin talks specifically. He's done a bunch of research on China recently. Uh, what ex-China is doing and uh, what sort of the government there has earmarked in terms of uh, new environmental regulations and what impacts those might have on base metals. So it's a really cool, cool talk we have. Uh, We also dig into, hey, maybe uranium has bottomed out. So we talk also about uh, a little bit about the energy market. We dig into thermal coal, which uh, has turned into sort of a bad word uh, in some of the more developed economies, but as Colin points out, is really driving industrialization and urbanization in some of the developing economies uh specifically in southeast asia uh so it's a great conversation with colin runs about i think 16 18 minutes uh so i'll run that first and foremost uh next leslie is back in action with another edition of the geology corner uh this week we're talking magmatic sulfide nickel copper deposits i think that's magmatic sulfide copper nickel deposits and what makes a world-class project in terms of nickel uh leslie digs into nickel exploration and what to look for in high quality drill targets uh and did you know there were seven major nickel camps globally uh so leslie's going to talk about the characteristics of voise's bay uh and the pitfalls of dealing with historical geophysical surveys also what's the deal with nickel tenor so it's really good stuff uh, nickel's really getting a lot of buzz with the uh, electric vehicle quote-unquote revolution uh, is it becoming a technology metal etc we also talk about this with colin uh the uh, ev narrative and uh what he foresees in terms of timing like when is this sort of industrial uh electronic vehicle demand going to actually impact the market so uh leslie follows that up with a great segment on nickel exploration if you're into that uh, i know it has become a bit bit of a big topic uh in the uh, junior community so uh, that's also a great segment finally 
our sponsor spotlight this week, uh, which is sponsored, by the way. I'm supposed to say that implicitly now. The sponsor spotlight is sponsored. So just so everyone knows, people pay to get on it. Uh, this week, it features major drilling. Uh, that's right. We're going to be talking about innovation and technology at the drill bit, drill bit <laughs> and how it's impacting one of the world's largest suppliers for exploration, development, and mining companies. So I'm going to sit down with Vice President IT and Logistics Mark Landry and Innovation Manager Ian Wilson to talk about some of the solutions and challenges major drilling has encountered uh, in terms of new technologies and an evolving workforce. Uh, so look forward to that one because it is another great segment. But before we dig into all that great content, let's take a look at our news and notes for the week. Commodities were all relatively flat as we approach the new year. Uh, gold was trading at $1,265 per ounce at the time of recording, while silver was at US $16.18 per ounce. Copper was trading at $3.15 per pound, while zinc was at $1.45 per pound. Meanwhile, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil was trading at $57.50 per barrel at the time of recording. Um, now let's dig a little bit into the details here. Uh, spot gold was relatively flat uh, as the market appears to be taking a more cautious approach with respect to the U.S. tax bill. Scotia Capital suspects that investors are, quote, uncertain of the reform's actual potential impact on economic growth. U.S. Fed Chairman Janet Yellen noted last week that it could be, quote, short-lived. Uh, the Republicans have self-imposed a Friday voting deadline for the tax bill, uh, and U.S. Congress appears all but certain to pass sweeping tax legislation after two Senate Republican holdouts agreed on Monday to support the tax overhaul backed by President Donald Trump. Uh, it could be choppy in the gold market, Scotia Capital notes, heading into the holiday season as liquidity is drying up. Uh, BMO Capital Markets released their gold report today and wrote that gold has been remarkably stable over the past couple of years and prices have seemingly become range-bound as normalizing monetary policy and dissipating geopolitical risk are offset by building inflationary pressures. Uh, BMO sees benefit coming from still loose monetary policy and re renewed inflation concerns, but potential for headwinds from dollar strength. Uh, BMO Capital Markets has made only a slight adjustment to its gold forecast over the near term, cutting 2018 numbers by 1.5% to an average of $1,280 per ounce throughout the year. Uh, the bank expects a slow and steady interest rate height cycle proposed by the Federal Reserve and subdued investor demand to keep prices in check and cap any significant upside potential. And shifting gears into industrials, Scotiabank notes that base metals are all down, quote, softly this morning with the complex running into some profit taking, uh, notably in an environment of low liquidity in what is the last full trading week of the year. Uh, Scotia adds that there is a view that higher copper prices could draw out more scrap for restockers heading into end of year, which could keep copper prices muted. However, the bank adds that positive sentiments continue to pervade in metals land with a rosier China outlook and expectations of a U.S tax cut. Scotiabank concludes that equities have already pushed higher, which could be good for cyclical assets like metals. Uh, switching gears to China, China's Central Economic Work Conference is currently underway. The World Bank forecasts overnight that China's economy will grow at 6.4% in 2018 and 6.3% in 2019. That is down from 6.8% this year. Scotia notes that prudent monetary policy, stricter financial regulation, and government efforts to restructure the economy will contribute to moderation. Uh, China unveiled its plan for a national carbon market, creating the world's biggest trading system for the climate warming emission. 
emissions. The program will reportedly initially be limited to the power sector, but China's market will still be bigger than the European Union system, encompassing 1,700 companies and about 3 billion metric tons of emissions. And that pretty much wraps up our news and notes for the day. So let's uh, let's head right into our content. Uh, first and foremost, I will be being joined on the phone by Managing Director of Commodity Research at BMO Capital Markets, Colin Hamilton. Uh, so we're going to dig even deeper into a lot of these uh, themes and uh, stories we just talked about in our news and notes. Uh, Colin's going to uh, explain what's going on in China in terms of some of the uh, environmental regulations, as well as what's going on in the seaborne thermal coal markets and all the industrial commodities. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to run this segment with Colin. As I mentioned, it runs about, uh, I think, 16 minutes or so. Uh, And then I'll be back after the break to introduce Leslie and the Geology Corner. Welcome back, everybody. This is Matthew Keevil with the Northern Miner Podcast, and today I am joined by Colin Hamilton, the Managing Director of Commodities Research at BMO Capital Markets. Thanks for joining us, Colin. Thank you, Matthew. Um, so, uh, Big Day uh, released a, a rather massive note today, Global Metals and Mining, the Industrial Metals and Bulk Commodities 2018 Outlook. So, Colin, we're excited to have you today uh, to talk a little bit about next year. Um, but first, before we do that, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, in retrospect, about 2017. Um, and the question I sort of wanted to ask you was obviously uh, looking at all the fundamentals and everything as, as analysts are apt to do. Um, maybe a couple things that went according to what you expected and a couple things that surprised you last year. Sure. In, in terms of uh, happening as we expected, I would say uh, this, the, we've, we've seen another year where we've had a lack of supply growth coming through. Of course, no one's spending capex and we've had... Uh, um, uh, situations where miners are still very nervous. I mean, we're, many of them are only um, 18 to 24 months past a, a near-death experience, so <laughs> understandably they're cautious on the CapEx side. So we haven't seen any of that supply growth coming through. Um, things that have surprised, I would say, uh, generally relate to China. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinese property has had a second year of outperformance, and uh, again, much stronger than we expected, so the demand side of the equation has been better. I would also say, uh, from the Chinese angle, the fact that they've started to push through some pretty aggressive supply-side reforms. Supply-side reforms something we've talked about a lot in markets for a while. We always thought they would get there in time, but 2017 has been the year where they've really accelerated that process. And that has changed the, the whole investment thesis across commodity markets. And it's interesting, Colin, um, I caught some of your comments and your colleagues' comments at the LME week uh, a month ago. Uh, and one of the things that sort of you're saying the Chinese economy maybe a bit outperformed expectations, but is that more of also a global uh, phenomenon? I mean, it seems like global economic growth is a bit more, um, a bit more uh, you know, has a bit more momentum than we he had anticipated in 2017. Uh, certainly the global industrial economy has done well, um, and uh, many times I've thought about it perhaps rolling over, but, it, but it's persisted, and if anything, if we, if we look at it at the moment, I mean, uh, global purchasing manager indices for manufacturing in every region are positive, yeah. and that point's actually quite a strong uh, first half of 2018 as well. Mm-hmm. What happens in these cycles normally, in the industrial cycles, yeah. China leads the way, 
and then that flows through to the rest of the global economy. Yeah. And certainly that's what we've seen at the current time. I, I would say for, for the first half of 2018, actually, ex-China will probably be outperforming China in terms of industrial demand growth. And uh, interesting, we do hear a lot about um, the uh, reforms or, or sort of uh, the environmental steps China's taking uh, internally, Colin. But maybe for our listeners, obviously being sort of on the forefront of that, you could talk a little bit about what exactly is going on in China in terms of uh, the supply side story. Certainly, I would say there's two elements to it. Uh, number one is, is how they're using the environment and how they're, they're putting through some more aggressive environmental policies. Uh, we've been very used in commodity markets to, to China um, processing a lot of, um, uh, being, being inefficient processors of a lot of raw materials, maybe being viewed as being quite pollutive. Well, of course, the environment is the one thing that the Chinese government can be judged on every single day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result, um, we've started to see this uh, new policies come through. Now, what we've seen is that they've just made it harder for the private sector to operate in many of these markets. Some of the smaller producers have found it uh, very hard. Basically, they've been regulated a lot more. Their access to capital is being limited. And as a result, we've lost that elastic uh, buffer we've had. So if you think of it, let's take an example. I think mine price is up 50% more or less on, on the lows we saw in, in 2015. Mm-hmm. In any other cycle, we'd have seen a Chinese domestic mine supply response. Mm-hmm. And this time we have not done that because the hurdles have been too high. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second element I would say is, is the supply side reform agenda. Now, the modeling commodity markets for the past 15 years has been China buys raw materials, it has more than enough process capacity, and then it will export you uh, a fair bit of the finished product as a deflationary pressure. Yeah, yeah. This year, for the first time, we saw them shut down operating steelmaking capacity. Uh, in aluminum, they said it's now one in, one out for new capacity. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, we're not getting that Chinese refined capacity addition. That we had uh, become very used to. And what it also means is we're getting less Chinese exports. And you project this forward, and suddenly, two or three years down the line, we may be looking at a situation in some of these markets where we have to re incentivize ex China capacity. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time I've, I've said that basically in a, in a decade. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because it, there is there is sort of two distinct stories going on, both on the supply and the demand side. I mean, as you mentioned, the lack of investment on the supply side, sort of uh, for a lot of these bulk commodities, w- where the next mines are going to come from. Uh, but on the demand side also, we hear this, um, and I'm sure you talk about this at, at length all the time, is this electric vehicle renewable sort of narrative that's going on. Um, and I wanted to know from sort of a fundamental side, is this as big a deal as people make it out to be, or is this more of a narrative story right now? At the at present time, it's more of a narrative story, yeah. but it, of course, um, what, what it's becoming is, is, is mainstream in terms of the future projections. Now, at mm-hmm. the moment, electric vehicles, I mean, little over 1% of, of global sales, mm-hmm. but of course, expectations are for that to go anywhere between, I would say, 5 and 15% by mm-hmm. the middle of the next decade. Mm-hmm. So it does become a bigger story, and yeah. of course, the the mining industry is looking for a growth story post-China. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so the, the, for some of these markets, uh, it, it can become a, a decent-sized impact sooner rather than later. Things yeah. like cobalt and lithium, of course, mm-hmm. that is starting already to drive the, the demand side. For others, and others such as maybe um, nickel and copper, it's really at the margin at, at, at the present time. Yeah. But, it, but it's an area that uh, certainly... Uh, mining companies with a, a longer time horizon 
I do like to focus on. Yeah, and you know, and it's, it's certainly you see it popping up in more and more uh, slide decks and PowerPoint presentations now for sure. Um, and, and Colin, I wanted to touch because we get a lot of questions on copper and nickel. Obviously, they're two pretty stalwart metals. Everybody sort of has some exposure to. Um, but but uh, I noticed in your note, we talk a lot about this sort of supply cliff for the copper market. And, and you said we've heard about it pretty constantly for the past decade. Um, but a little bit of insight maybe on, on where you see that supply side on the copper. Um, and also maybe a bit on the demand too, just if that's going to stay sort of sort of uh, static or if, it's, if there's some growth there as well. Sure, uh, absolutely. Now, yeah. uh, as I said in the note, basically commodities analysts have been calling this copper cliff. It's always been three years away for, for much of the past decade. Yeah. Whereas yeah. now I think it's actually about 18 months away. Okay. I, I think if we, if we put ourselves in the middle of 2019, uh, Grasberg, second biggest mine in the world, has, has peaked. It peaks in 2018. Cobre Panama for First Quantum, the last of the big mega projects, if you want, was um, uh, that was commissioned or, or, or was approved in the last cycle. Yeah. Well, that's that's in the market by that point. And also uh, SXEW production, so copper through solvent extraction and electro winning, mm-hmm. which is uh, about, I mean, just over three and a half million tons of copper supply. But it's been a lot of the growth actually um, this century. Well, that peaks in our numbers in 2019. So we're sitting in the middle of 2019. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, that supply growth is gone. And mm-hmm. that's when And uh, commodity prices aren't necessarily forward-looking. We may not see that in the commodity price in 2018. Mm-hmm. But you certainly see it talked about a lot more in the market. Yeah. Now, the demand side is an interesting one. Um, like copper is unlike some of the other industrial metals. For example, steel, where you get big cycles as, as the economies uh, industrialize. Copper, you've a, a rather steadier demand growth profile over time, going more to the wealth effect. Now, uh, for copper, we're running with about with demand growth of, of 2.3-2.4% per annum globally over the coming five years. Yeah. That's slightly above trend, okay. but that's more to reflect the fact that uh, in order to prepare for electric vehicles, we need a lot of distribution grids um, rebuilt around the world, particularly in the world's cities, mm-hmm. and that is a very copper-intensive process. So we're, we're happier to run with slightly above 10 Yeah, and then uh, we obviously hear maybe more so than any other metal recently. Obviously, we get the technology metals like lithium and cobalt, but nickel's really started to sort of garner that attention uh, as we talk about the different sort of battery chemistries that might be coming online in the lithium-ion battery space. Um, sort of, uh, is nickel right now? Do you think it's more of a supply side story or demand side story? I would say at the moment nickel is more of a supply side story, yeah. and, and nickel. I mean, demand for. For nickel has actually been above many other uh, base metal peers over the longer term, but that's more due to, to stainless steel uh, yeah. penetration more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, stainless steel has grown at about 6% per annum mm-hmm. over the past 15 years. Now, the challenge for nickel at the moment is uh, I'm, I'm probably more cautious on nickel in a five-year view than I was this time last year okay. because Indonesia has relaxed its ore export ban. That means uh, the Chinese stainless steel industry has a ready supply of nickel ore. There's no raw material constraint in the market anymore. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the price of nickel, in my view, is set by the cost of making nickel pig iron in China, okay. which um, a, a big part of that is the ore prices. With more Indonesian supply, I can only see that ore price heading lower. Yeah. Now, longer term, you will see bifurcation in the nickel market mm-hmm. um, as you get growth from non-stainless applications and of course batteries we expect to lead the way there. Mm-hmm. We do expect uh, uh, lithium ion um, cathode chemistries for, for electric vehicles to become more nickel rich over time, mm-hmm. uh, particularly as um, 
the availability of cobalt uh, is, is constrained. But it takes until the middle of the next decade for that really to come through from a fundamental perspective. So it's interesting. I mean, what would make me more positive in nickel is if actually some of the higher cost um, class one high purity nickel suppliers actually left it in the ground at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would actually accelerate the process. So okay. Okay. Uh, t- take a kind of portfolio view of the asset and say, well, actually, this could be worth more in 10 years time if I just leave it where it is. Yeah, and that's strategic. Yeah, strategic development management. And, and I mean, Colin, the, the other metal I wanted to talk to you about, uh, I caught your LME talk on zinc. Um, and, and obviously, we've heard a lot about zinc over the last 18 months as it sort of rallied there. But you said now, uh, you sort of hinted that there wasn't very much upside, but more so it was about sort of how long uh, zinc was going to stay, you know, above this $1 range or wherever sort of is a nice level for, for consumers and producers. So maybe a little bit of uh, a color on, on, on how you're feeling about zinc heading into 2018. I mean, zinc has been a, a great story from a commodity perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's played out like it should in that we had mine supply falling, yeah. we had refined output falling, we've had stocks drawing. And as we said today, the, the zinc market is extremely tight. However, no one really wants it to go higher from this point. Obviously, consumers do not want it to go higher. Mm-hmm. But also, I would say that producers yeah. are getting nervous now about demand destruction, and that kills some of the medium-term story. Yeah. I would also say we're getting a zinc mine supply response, not from China, as we discussed before, yeah. but actually from uh, smaller assets in Peru, mm-hmm. um, from getting, of course, some Glencore, Glencore restart starting to come through. Mm-hmm. We're getting some greenfield operations. So I don't want to say that zinc is in the rearview mirror already. It just feels now that we're struggling for, to see what the next catalyst is for upside. Mm-hmm. Of course, it could spike. I mean, it's very uh, inventory light, if you want, on the exchanges. Mm-hmm. However, I wouldn't view that as, a, as being a sustainable move. So from now, it's more a case, the best thing almost for the zinc producers in the market is for a period where it consolidates after around this level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would now say, though, the, the risk-reward on a 12-month view from, from current prices is, is starting to shift towards the downside. Yeah, and you certainly heard that a similar thing from, I, I was on the Glencore big investor call last week, and they made a huge deal about the supply disruption, that, or destruction that you, you mentioned, so uh, it's, you're definitely hearing that from the big miners as well. Um, and one of the things that really strikes me, Colin, is we're, I'm sitting here in North America, and, and uh, thermal coal is sort of a bad word here. Uh, they don't like to hear it too much, obviously, it's pretty heavily politicized in the U.S. and Canada. But uh, I noticed that uh, a lot of people are pretty bullish on thermal coal globally. Um, so maybe a little bit of discussion on Seaborn and, and, and why, uh, why that's uh, a good investment thesis heading forward here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in, in the long term, thermal coal has many problems. Yeah. Uh, and I expect global trade to fall at 50%. I sit in the UK. In the UK, we basically burn no coal anymore. Yeah. And we, uh, there was about 25% of the fuel mix just three years ago. Mm. Um, so it's been regulated at many markets. But in the short term, if the global industrial economy is strong, as we discussed earlier, mm-hmm. um, particularly the Asian industrial economy, there is only one way you power it, and that is with thermal coal. Mm-hmm. And therefore, um, thermal coal demand for coal-fired generation in many of the Asian economies mm-hmm. has been extremely strong this year. The seaborne trade has, as a result, risen by, by more than 30 million tonnes. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have had uh, no one wants to spend money in this industry. No. So as a result... <laughs> We've had a, a situation where we've had to attract back some marginal supply from Indonesia. Some U.S. exports to Asia have more than tripled this year. So we're getting that marginal supply back into the market. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, it is tight. We don't expect it to stay this way forever. Mm-hmm. But at the present time, looking at first half of next year, we're still seeing an Asian industrial economy that looks quite robust. Mm-hmm. And as, as a result, um, the thermal 
can can stay at or around these levels for the moment. Yeah, yeah, and and well, I mean, while we're on energy, and you mentioned powering these sort of urbanization initiatives and these industrialization things that are happening in some of the growing economies in Asia, I mean. Uranium. Now we, you're, it's been a tough go here for a lot of the uranium producers. We've heard all this stuff about Cameco and and, and Kazakh Prom taking production offline and things like that. Um, but maybe a little bit of, of how BMO is looking at uh, the uranium market over the next eighteen, two years, eighteen months, etc. Sure, and it's, it's been a frustrating one for a while. We've been waiting for some of these industry leaders to, to take the steps needed because this, this market is awash with inventory. There is yeah. very high inventories globally, and it will take a, a sustained period for them to draw down. Now, finally, we're getting some big production cuts, uh, and we are looking at a situation where we'll start to run down those inventories over the next year. Now, the question almost is, when did utilities start to worry about this a bit more? Yeah. Uh, at the moment, they are, they're pretty well supplied. They've got adequate inventory, but they can see that if we get these production cuts um, really coming through into next year, that when they start to contract tons again for 2019, 2020, mm-hmm. they will be a little bit more nervous. So uh, uranium, what, is, what it signifies is we're past the bottom of the cycle. where We had that period where spot pricing was around uh, $20 a pound of uranium. That is, of course, I mean, a multi-year loan, let's put it in context. Yeah. Uh, the uranium, the real uranium price over the past 40 years has fallen by about 95%. Yeah. Uh, that's, and that, is, uh, that shows the real sustained level of underperformance. But it feels like we're getting past the bottom, almost like uh, the, the potash market was um, 12 to 18 months ago when we had the big producers start to, uh, start to exert some discipline in the industry. And then that signifies the bottom. Now the question is, where do we go to? We can see some upside in, in spot pricing as, as utilities get a little more nervous. It's hard to see us going back to levels where we need to to incentivize new tonnage or whatever. Uh, a long way away. Yeah, and, and just to sort of, I have one last question here, Colin, uh, just to wrap it up. I mean, we've talked a lot, obviously, about uh, minerals, fundamentals, the commodity markets, and bulk inventories and things. Uh, but I wanted to draw it back a little bit to the mining companies uh, and the equities for anyone who might be invested in them. I mean, how are, are is BMO think feeling about mining equity? Um, and sort of what are you hearing from some of the larger maybe suppliers and things like that about where they feel the market is? It's interesting. Um, I, I would say the mining equities are still uh, a lot of or there's not as much generalist interest as you thought there might have been, particularly given the, the free cash flow yields that we're seeing coming through from a lot of these mining companies. Mm-hmm. If we look at um, some of the cyclical indicators, um, we, I mean, if you look at average EBT, EBITDA, for example, these multiples are at cyclical lows. Uh, and it shows there's just not the belief there, particularly, and, and I would say there's still some fears around China and mm-hmm. Chinese demand into next year. Um, but actually, we're not talking about commodity prices bursting higher from here. We're talking about them having a consolidation year. And in our view, the equities actually have a, a, a fair bit of catching up to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we would suggest as people realise that actually the global industrial economy is still okay for now, mm-hmm. you will see some further rotation back into metals and mining more generally. And of course, the benefit of the, the equities. I would say the, the, some of the trends we're seeing, mm-hmm. obviously cost inflation is starting to come back. Yeah, yeah. Mining companies are starting to, to talk about that again. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, cost curves themselves are steepening because the quality spreads are seeing. So what you're being paid for good quality raw material mm-hmm. in, a, in an environment where China has to be more productive and more environmentally friendly is higher. So you've seen a steepening of cost curves, which is the benefit of generally the major producers at the bottom end of, of these cost curves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, perfect.
Perfect. Well, once again, we have been joined by Colin Hamilton, the Managing Director of Commodities Research at BMO Capital Markets. Thanks for joining us, Colin. Pleasure. Thank you. to studio thanks again to colin hamilton the managing director of commodity research at bmo capital markets for joining us by phone from london england it's always great to chat with colin he's right on the forefront there uh between the western industrial complex china what's going on sort of in the developing southeast asia economies etc so it's uh, it's always a treat to talk to him about what's going on out there globally in terms of supply demand fundamentals uh get a little bit of uh, a retrospective uh commentary on what he thought of 2017 and a few hints on uh, what we can expect heading into the new year so thanks again colin uh hopefully we'll get him on the show maybe maybe once a quarter or so uh to get an update on what's going on out there globally in terms of our bulk commodity fundamentals uh so let's sally on forth uh right over to the geology corner with leslie stokes uh as i said we will be talking about magmatic <laughs> magmatic sulfide nickel copper deposits this is which is apparently super difficult for me to say but i got it i got it now um but uh leslie's going to uh, dig into some of these really big camps i.e voices bay etc talk a little bit about uh nickel exploration uh and the formation of these deposits is formation a word i think so the uh the genesis of these deposits if you will um and uh really dig down into uh, some of uh, this nickel exploration aspects and if you're an investor uh, we've heard a lot of this out of coming out of junior markets in terms of finding uh, new nickel sulfide deposits etc to fuel or underpin this uh, incoming electric vehicle revolution uh, so uh, this is a great little segment I, I actually this is something I, I requested I'm like Leslie could you look into nickel I'm kind of interested to hear what you think about uh, everything that's going on out there in terms of nickel exploration etc so uh, this is a great little segment. I'll run it, uh, I think it runs about 8 to 10 minutes uh, with Leslie, and uh, I will be back after the break uh, to sort of wrap up the show and introduce our sponsor spotlight for the week, which once again uh, is with Major Drilling. you guys but have you ever watched cold milk chaotically swirl and sink when poured into a hot cup of coffee and find yourself thinking gosh you know this must be what the guts of a magma chamber must look like well if you have I'm willing to bet you're a geologist and you've come to the right place this is the northern miners geology corner and I'm your host writer and geologist Leslie Stokes in this week's corner, we're going to dump some sugar into that hot cup of magma of yours. We're going to delve into the formation of magmatic nickel copper deposits. So how they form, what we don't know about them. Most importantly, what are the characteristics of the world-class deposits out there? Now, why are we doing this? Well, for example, the, the electric vehicle revolution has lit a fire underneath some juniors to go out and explore for nickel. And some of us geologists and investors, myself particularly, on the sidelines, watching all this go down, we may need a little refresher course on what to look for in high quality targets. So to get started, there are seven major camps in the world. The largest being Sudbury in Ontario and the Norilsk deposits of Russia. 
Then there's Kimbalda in Western Australia. We have Voises Bay in Labrador, Thompson Nickel Belt in Manitoba, Raglan in Northern Quebec, and Jinchuan in China. And forgive me if I've forgotten any others, but those are kind of the major ones <clears throat> that you'll hear heaps about. So these deposits are largely associated with ultramafic rocks, which is a fancy way of calling a magma that's sourced from the mantle that contains really high magnesium and iron. So these magmas tend to have a lot more metal associated with them, and they're super hot. Like they're thousands of degrees hotter than the magmas that form a porphyry, for example. And when these magmas travel through the crust from the mantle, they're just gobbling up and melting all the rocks in their way. Sometimes they'll interact with rocks that can contain abundant sulfur, like shales or gneisses? What's the plural for gneiss? Nice? Oh my gosh. But anyway, when they do interact with those rocks, their compositions change, and they can trigger a whole chain of geochemical reactions that melt. So it's kind of like adding sugar into a cup of coffee. The hotter the coffee is, the more sugar will dissolve. We all see this every single day if you're an avid coffee drinker. But if you add too much um, sugar, it'll get saturated, and the sugar will just precipitate out, sink to the bottom, you name it. There's other things involved here like oxygen fugacity and like different compositions that can trigger precipitation and all this jazz. But this, I'm just kind of doing this for layman's explanations example. It's all part of the same process. But the same kind of goes for adding sulfur to the magma. Too much sulfur and it'll just break out and it'll be floating around the magma chamber. And we all know that sulfur attracts metals. Metals love sulfur. So all the nickel and the copper and the cobalt, the PGMs floating around the magma, sees the sulfur and they're like deadly boys and they go and they latch onto it and then they form its own immiscible fluid and like that floats around um, and it gets condensed into the sulfide liquid. So in traditional models, as the magma chamber cools, this heavy metal rich sulfide liquid rains down and pools at the bottom of a chamber floor, forming layers of massive sulfides. Whereas maybe less dense sulfides or perhaps a rapidly or more quicker cooling sort of magma chamber, maybe it'll crystallize with the magma itself and the minerals, only to form a variety of sulfide textures, which you hear about often is like, you know, net textured, disseminated. So generally in these deposits, you have net textured, disseminated sort of um, sulfides grading into the massive sulfide portion of the deposit, right? And that's why. So that's the spiel that you'll get off of company websites. But <laughs> let's face it, this is geology, people. Nothing is ever that easy <laughs> as much as we want it to be. Magma chambers are not simple. There can be multiple chambers, each connected by complex highways of dikes and sills carrying hot magma, and all of it is chaotically convecting around. It's mixing, it's changing composition, it's depressurizing and repressurizing when new like magma gets injected into the chamber. It could be cooling in one part, it could be remelting in another part again and again. So realistically, is a magma chamber kind of like your cup of hot coffee? Mm, no, but it 
does offer a nice little preview to contemplate on, at least for me, especially in the wee hours of the morning. So when it comes to this traditional model, it wasn't actually until Voise's Bay was discovered in the 90s when geologists realized that this gravitational settling of sulfides in a magma chamber exploration model used was flawed. And don't get me wrong, settling definitely plays a part in the formation of these deposits. But we have to acknowledge that the flow can be a lot more dynamic. For example, most of the ore at Voises Bay is found in the feeder dikes, connecting the two chambers, eastern and western deeps. And um, it also appears that the massive sulfides were injected, assume, into the eastern deeps ore body. So, you know, that dense metal rich sulfide liquid could actually be transported through fluid flow rather than settling. And you can see that same sort of features at like other world-class camps like Norilsk or Jinchuan. And this kind of just shook everyone up. And the rocks themselves too at Boise's Bay were anorthosites, which aren't as magnesium rich as um, the other deposits in the world. So it really kind of rocked everybody and it changed everyone's perspective on how they see these um, really economic fluids kind of move throughout the system. It was completely unconventional. So the question then um, that happened after that is like, well, how do you explore for these deposits now if they don't fit our traditional way of thinking? And the only way to do that, I think, is to kind of really look at the similarities between the major camps and seeing what characteristics still stand. And with the exception of Norilsk, all the major camps in the world are Proterozoic or Archean in age, so about one billion years old plus. So why are they so old anyway? And I looked into it, and it could be an artifact of erosion. So the deeper parts of the Earth's crust, right, where ultramafic rocks, these super hot temperature like magmas, used to hang out, they're more commonly exposed and eroded ancient cratons. Um, but it also could be a function of geothermal gradients, meaning back in the Archean, the Earth's crust was significantly warmer today. Um, or significantly warmer back then compared to today. And the hotter temperature magmas were able to flow through the crust longer without cooling. So they were much more prolific back then. Um, the other major kind of similarity between the deposits would be that they're all associated with a cratonic margin. So some sort of massive like structural break that allowed deep ultramafic fluids to flow rapidly upwards so Thompson, Raglan, Voises, these all occur on craton margins. Um, Norilsk also caps a major mantle leak because it's centered on this massive continental flood basalt that dates, I think it's Triassic. Oh God, I'm sorry if I, I forgot to search that out before, but it's, it's relatively young compared to the other ones. Um, and that is that flood basalt, that outpouring of lava back then was so extensive it actually caused a mass extinction on Earth. 97% of all life went extinct because the volcanoes had changed like the Earth's um, atmosphere so quickly. And this is a topic um, that we called the Great Dying in episode 62 of the podcast. So if you're super intrigued with you know, what kind of event occurred that actually created the Norilsk deposits, you should check that episode out. It's pretty cool. But anyway, in a nutshell, Exploration for magmatic nickel copper deposits, often limited 
to the major cratonic margins where there have been large outpourings of ultramafic magma from the mantle. And so to home in on these deposits, explorers rely largely on geophysics, like electromagnetics, right, to spot any conductors under the surface and follow up on those targets with drilling. Now, investors really shouldn't expect every target to have this huge, screaming, geophysical anomaly. Um, even though massive sulfides are excellent conductors, um, but if you have like disseminated or net texture sulfides, so sulfides that aren't interconnected, so they can't carry like any electrical signal or anything, it might not be enough to generate a strong conductor response. So what you see in surveys are little clusters of conductors rather than one giant massive footprint of one um, that are usually associated with an economic ore body. So you may also hear that these companies are going to reprocess geophysical data, which, yeah, can be an old trick up the promoter's sleeve, just, you know, make work sort of program. But with these deposits, it's necessary. And this is because conventional exploration in the past assumed these deposits to be sheets of massive sulfides at the bottom of a magma chamber. Um, but as we learned from Boise's Bay, that's not the case. They can be dikes and sills between magma chambers and they can follow the pre-existing structural grain. So explorers today need to make sure that old geophysical surveys have the correct orientation. So say if your ore body is in a vertical dike and your historical geophysical lines were parallel to that structure, well, the bodies could have missed it altogether. Whoops. So good to recheck all that. And the last thing too that you'll hear heaps of is nickel tenor. And not to be confused with grade, Tenor is the amount of nickel in 100% sulfides. It's essentially a measure of how well the sulfide liquid in the magma absorbed the metal. So after Boise's, tenor is what drove exploration and companies spent years chasing tenor. But in hindsight, it wasn't a meaningful criteria in terms of discriminating targets. Remember, bodies of magma are not homogenous. You can have some parts of the system that has high tenor and other parts that are low. Uh, so individual samples aren't useful. You need a huge spread of data points to really reach any conclusion about the quality of the system. It's just geostatistics. So with all this being said, every geological model does have a lifespan. Let's keep an open mind, people. Gotta keep an open mind. Just like Boise's Bay rocked the way we think about magmatic nickel-copper deposits, so could another deposit we haven't discovered yet. So I guess that's all 2BA and uh, see what kind of comes out of the works. And that's it for this week's Geology Corner. In fact, that's it for this week's Geology Corner before the holidays. So I wanted to wish everyone out there listening a very happy holidays with you and your loved ones. Be excellent to each other, take some time, kick up your feet, and just relax. That's cool. Have a great day. Bye for now. And welcome.
welcome back, and thanks again to Leslie for another great edition of the Geology Corner. We look forward to many of those heading into 2018 and providing you with all those inside geology tips and tricks you need to make smart investments in the business. Uh, and while we're on the subject, uh, please do consider heading over to northernmeyer.com and hitting that subscribe button. Uh, we are uh, striving to always bring you new products and exclusives. Uh, if you want to uh, proverbially get inside the boardroom, there is no better way to do it uh, than to get yourself a, a copy of the Northern Miner and uh, dig into what all those CEOs and executives are saying about their companies, about other companies, about markets, etc. Uh, we are always striving to give you the best exclusives in the mining industry. Uh, also, uh, if uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, on iTunes there, hitting a rating for us. It doesn't have to be five stars, though I would like it to be. Um, but uh, that helps us out a ton if you rate us on iTunes. Uh, do follow us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, uh, our SoundCloud account, YouTube, etc. Uh, we do appreciate that as well. And please always feel free to reach out for us. Uh, if you have a programming idea or a story you think is being underreported in the business, please do reach out. We'll look into everything for you. And speaking of which, I will be ending the show with our sponsor spotlight, which is sponsored uh, this week. Uh, we are talking, as I mentioned, to Mark Landry and Ian Wilson from Major Drilling. Uh, we'll drill a little bit down into uh, some of the innovation, challenges, and solutions Major has been coming up with. Uh, this is another one of the exclusive interview series I did at our Progressive Mind Forum in Toronto in late October. So that will be what we we'll be wrapping up the show with um but uh so that is uh pretty much wraps up our show for the year yeah i mean it's uh the end of 2017 i hope everyone had a great year thank you once again for joining us as always at the northern minor podcast we look forward to uh to talking and chatting with you and bringing you tons of new content in the new year um and uh, just continuing where we left off because uh, as i mentioned at the onset this has really been a banner year for the northern minor podcast uh we've had a great time doing it and uh, i look forward to you know a attending events like uh, AMEBC Roundup and PDAC in the new year and bringing more and more and more of this exclusive content with uh, management, industry insiders, analysts, etc., etc. And we're going to uh, strive to just make sure we talk to everybody and get you that content that matters uh, for mining and for the commodity business. So thank you once again. Uh, this has been the 2017 edition of the Northern Miner Podcast. I am Matthew Keevil, heading out of town for the holidays. I wish you and your family the very best, and I'll talk to you in 2018 welcome to welcome to the sponsor spotlight sponsor spotlight and welcome back we are in downtown toronto at the northern miners progressive mine forum uh and this is the next in our, our interview series uh, i am joined uh, by mark landry uh, vice president it and logistics at major drilling and ian wilson innovation manager also at major gentlemen thank you for joining us thanks for having us and uh i guess the theme of the day uh as we've heard uh, over and over again is innovation um and uh it's it's very interesting to me to hear from the drill side uh in terms of of what's going on in exploration and and development drilling for that matter as well um so maybe just to start off uh when it comes to drilling when it comes to major uh, what has innovation meant for your company well for for us it's been an opportunity if you want to, to bring solutions to customers right uh i mean being uh uh, in 15 countries, over 600 drills, we have lots of experience that we can tackle problems that clients wants to solve, right? And we can tap into our expertise. So for us, we see it as an opportunity to continue bringing more value, figuring out solutions to complex uh, projects. Uh, while doing it, we have the opportunity to, uh, to have safer uh, kind of uh, processes, right? And equipment uh, mm -hmm. so that we can retain and have uh, the right staff to get the job done. 
And, and maybe just a little bit of what some of those challenges might be. I mean, I, I know as drillers you work in very remote areas, often challenging topographies and things like that, but what's sort of some of the major, maybe top headline challenges that, that technology and innovation is helping you with? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, in, in safety, first of mm -hmm. all, right? I mean, just the whole concept of rod handling. Yeah. I mean, that's something that we led through uh, the industry. Uh, a couple of years ago, right? So, so that's something that's been uh, really important for us and has helped us, if you want, bring value. Mm -hmm. and, and even in that field, we're continuing to develop and innovate there where we're looking at fully hands-free uh, road oh, handling, right? Okay. So, and, and it's all a question of just partnering up with key uh, manufacturers and, and suppliers to, uh, to build these things, right? So it's all about being agile and, uh, and, 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 and develop. <laughs> And, and the clients who obviously are the mining companies and the explorers, mostly, do they come to you with these problems? They say we need to find solutions to, to this problem or do you design the solutions for them? No, I think yeah. it's, a, it's a question of partnering up with yeah. clients and really listening and, and understanding what their needs are, right? Yeah. I mean, for sure, uh, uh, having a safe work environment that fits if you want the client's standards are, are key. Uh, the clients that we do work with also uh, do ask for for uh, new solutions. Uh, uh, there's a cost to it, right? Mm -hmm. So so yeah. it has to it has to work, and, and that's where we we we, uh, we are able to set up with the right uh, with the right uh, partners if you want to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and 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 one of the other interesting conversations we obviously had a bit off tape here uh, was about labor um, and uh, you know some of the challenges associated with maintaining and, and hiring and, and and that kind of stuff. Um, so maybe a little bit of, of discussion about about uh, how innovation and technology impacts impacts your labor force. Well, for sure. I mean, I think that's going to be the biggest challenge uh, as we uh, get into this next upturn, right? Is, mm -hmm. is the whole question of. Uh, finding, if you want, qualified labor to, to in the field, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think in 2012, when uh, everything started dropping off, uh, a lot of our field staff, I mean, maybe be a, of uh, the boomer generations, I mean, probably decided some of them to, to, to not come back to this field, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so now we're looking at hiring, if you want, the younger generation, if you want, the ones that have uh, grown up with technology, yeah. with tablets and everything like that. So we can see innovation as being an opportunity for us to be an employer of choice, right? Mm -hmm. So um, um, Ian's been working at developing tablet uh, solutions in the field and maybe you want to talk about how that kind of lines up. To make the to make the job more appealing, you gotta you gotta create an allure to the job. You gotta you gotta attract people to the position because naturally it's in the general public. We're not really well known as the mining the mining uh, industry kind of it falls behind tech and everything else that, that's going on, right? So um, to make it to make it interesting, to make it appealing, you gotta you gotta you know apply those technologies uh, so those employees are are brought to the company so they see something you know interesting about the company that they want to be part of. So um, you know able to take the technology and put it in their hands. So you know instead of the old paper and pen and uh, recopying and duplication of of work, and uh, you're able to record it once. You're able to get information out of it, which is what we need out of it, and we're making it easier for them to give us that information by giving them the tools to be able to, to do that, right? And, yeah, and, and it's interesting because we're, we're solely leading into the big data discussion here, and, and that's, that's a discussion that's, that's obviously ongoing at the conference and at the forum by a lot of people. Um, so, so I've heard from a, a number of suppliers about how big data impacts their business, but how is big data impacting the drilling business? Well, we're, we're seeing opportunities for us as we're currently connecting some of our drills uh, to, to get the data out, right? Maybe 
pressure on bit water flow, uh, mm -hmm. water pressure. We're finding that uh, by measuring these, uh, uh, these, these indicators, we're going to be able to find what the right parameters are for drilling in certain set of ground, right? Mm -hmm. So, so we're, we're definitely seeing value in that. Uh, there's a lot of work being done by a lot of uh, smart people. Uh, we're part of that conversation right now and working with different suppliers on that. And, and one of the sort of stories we hear a lot is, is depth. Everything's at a greater depth. Uh, you're drilling at a greater depth. You're you're operating at greater depth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for you guys, is is, is there sort of any um, headlining tech that's helping with with challenges that come with, you know, deeper deposits finding deposits that aren't necessarily, as they say, low hanging fruit. Yeah, yeah. I, you're absolutely right. I think uh, uh, the more time progresses, the more. Uh, it's becoming harder to find if you want the deposits where you would have found them in more shallow ground maybe before, right? Mm -hmm. So, and that's something that we uh, uh, feel that we have the expertise to tackle, right? I mean, being a specialized driller, we've got the gear and the equipment to go deeper uh, than than uh, than a lot of uh, maybe other competitors in our field. But that's where we've niched ourselves. Uh, so we have uh, uh, we have. Uh, fleet if you want that can accommodate going deep and you also need to, to hit the target when yeah. you're doing it right yeah <laughs> so uh, definitely it's it's uh, it's part of our strategy to be able to accommodate those type of projects and it's interesting I mean um, sort of some of the things you've heard today that the mining industry lags behind or the mining industry is, is slow to adapt mm -hmm. um, I mean in your conversations with exploration companies and mining companies um, have you seen them becoming more and more open to trying new ideas uh, yeah, yeah, not every one of them, right? It's still it's still a competitive market right now. Pricing is still very much top of mind, I think. Uh, however, we do find uh, that there is a client base that we work with that do like to try new things and prototype. And mm -hmm. we have quite a few initiatives right now on the go uh, with different manufacturers where we are able to then uh, engage clients to say, hey, let's let's uh, let's innovate, let's be agile, and, and let's roll out technologies. Right? Mm -hmm. For sure, there's a cost to it, and we want to absorb our part. It's more a question of uh, finding the right, if you want, team to, to, to get these uh, to get these rolled out. But definitely, there's a lot of a uh, lot of good initiatives right now that are being uh, trialed out. Uh, so there's good changes coming in. And and that's interesting because. Um, that's moving a little bit into the collaboration angle, where maybe you're collaborating with OEMs or collaborating mm -hmm. with, with different suppliers, whereas maybe they were viewed as your competition previously. I mean, are you seeing that heightened level of maybe openness to, to collaboration on some of these projects, partnerships, if you would? Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think we're meeting quite a lot of people here mm -hmm. in this week, right? Absolutely, and uh, it's, diamond drilling in general has always been a small community. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we all come from each other, we've all worked uh, with each other, we've all seen each other, and, and to collaborate and you know we're all dealing with the same problem so inevitably we're going to be solving the same we're going to be coming to the same solutions as we as we move forward and technologies are brought towards our industry right yeah. um, it's it's kind of obviously you know if, if we if we come up with an advancement we want to take full advantage of that and uh, uh, but at the same time we're all solving the same problem so uh, innovations going to progress throughout the industry not just um, you know, it won't be in a vacuum, as they say, or Absolutely. just yeah. siloed. But, thing, but, yeah. but there, I mean, but that's that's uh, what we uh, entertain is is we have we work with a lot of OEMs and uh, and uh, and manufacturers and uh, 
there's a lot of discussions going on and we need to do a good job at picking the ones that I want to share it in the investment of innovation, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, there's a, uh, this is looking long term and, uh, and uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things going on, if you want, in that space. A lot of manufacturers looking at, uh, at developing things and we like to partner up with some of them. Perfect. Well, gentlemen, thank you. Once again, this has been Mark Landry, Vice President IT and Logistics with Maser Drilling and Ian Wilson, Innovation Manager. Thanks again. Great. Thank you. Thank All you. Right.